So welcome back to the Future Cities podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Elser. This month, we have a very special episode featuring two leaders from the Canon design firm. We'll be talking about very important and familiar features found in just about any city, hospitals. Hospitals are such vital parts of the cities where we live, playing a major role in providing health care to a considerable amount of the population. They can also serve as hubs for, of community and economic development, with some hospitals even working to provide affordable housing and promoting workforce development in the communities that they serve. It's essential that hospitals continue to operate and provide their services during extreme weather events, but this can be a challenge. Our guests today, though, work on this very topic of designing hospitals to be more resilient to extreme events, and we'll be sharing some insights from a report they've published about some of their previous work. Without further ado, I'm joined today by Mike Cavanaugh, Director of Sustainability, and Brett Farbstein, Director of Resiliency from Canon Design. Welcome, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Uh, so before we get into the conversation, I'd just like to give our listeners a chance to get to know both of you and your voices. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit uh, about yourselves? Yeah, thanks, Stephen. So uh, my name is Mike Calvin. I'm the Director of Sustainability at Canon Design. And um, my background is I'm an architect, trained as an architect, and I've been practicing for almost 20 years. My interest in sustainability started probably like a lot of people around, you know, uh, 2007, 2008. Uh, as the topic really started to come to the fore of our consciousness. My intro to uh, sustainable design and then, you know, resilient design really comes from, um, as an architect, um, being aware of design energy and the role it plays in terms of operations of buildings. Um, Can Design is a signatory to the um, the AIA 2030 commitment, which is a uh, basically a, a, a net zero uh, kind of goal-setting commitment uh, that was started by Architecture 2030, uh, and we've been signatory since 2009. And what it means to be a signatory is that we've been, you know, reporting our design energy since then, and our design energy is the energy use intensity of the buildings that we design. Um, so as, uh, you know, that was a major part of our firm's motivation. Um, that was kind of my intro to sustainability. Um, over the last few years, I've taken on a larger role in the firm, uh, and as do other areas such as, uh, you know, material health, um, you know, human impacts, uh, environmental impacts, materials, and also uh, resilient design. I'm Brett Farbstein. I am the uh, commissioning services leader and resilient design leader for Canon Design. Uh, I am an engineer, uh, but have some architectural background as well. Uh, I've gotten involved in the high-performance building, uh, sustainability, energy efficiency type of work, and uh, got first involved with resiliency working on the uh, VA Medical Center in New Orleans post-Katrina, and then uh, with projects down in New York City post-Superstorm uh, Sandy, working now with Canon Design to kind of champion the idea of having resilient design conversations on all our projects. Um, but certainly healthcare um, have some specific needs that I think uh, is important to, to have these conversations. Yeah, absolutely. For those listeners uh, at home, could you explain uh, what is Canon Design? Yeah, so um, as you probably heard, I, I'm an architect, Brett's an engineer, so uh, that's kind of typifies Canon Design. We're a multidisciplined uh, architecture and engineering firm. Uh, we also... Um, uh, have construction services as well. So we're really kind of an integrated design services firm is what we call it. Uh, we've got 20 offices. We're international. And um, our mission as a firm is to 
uh, create design solutions to the greatest challenges facing our clients and society. That's our mission statement. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the challenges of climate change, the challenges of resilient design and sustainable design are very much in line with our firm's mission. And, uh, and so that's what, uh, what we focus on uh, professionally, and, uh, and we're trying to uh, get our industry to focus on that as well. And uh, what, what made both of you interested in these positions that you now have in Canon Design? So I would say resiliency lends itself to looking to the future, uh, designing for potentials and uh, really extreme events. So for me, it's very exciting as a designer that we're contemplating these, uh, these, these events and how we can help mitigate and, and recover from. So it, I think it's, it's exciting. And truly, I think they are some of the greatest challenges our clients and our, our communities and our world faces are the effects of climate change and how, if we can't prevent them, how do we deal with them? Yeah, and I would say, I would add to that too, that you know, both of us are also dads. Um, and so we each have, we each have kids. Um, and, uh, and that's a major motivation for me. Uh, and so it's, it's not just about what we can do, get our clients to do, but also uh, what we're doing for uh, you know, the future generations that are gonna inhabit this planet. And as we see climate change happening, and we see the reports from the IPCC getting more dire, uh, we know there's a business case to make, uh, and we just really need to, you know, we feel like the timing is getting better for this business case because serious businesses are taking this seriously, and healthcare businesses in particular are taking this seriously and even more serious. Yeah, that's, that's a, I think, a really good point you're making. And I think um, hearing that anyway is a bit reassuring to me, given uh, certain um, political actors at the moment uh, cast doubt on, you know, the, the impacts of climate change or whether climate change is even happening. And so it's, for, to me, it's, it's motivating to hear that, that private entities like Canada Design are taking this so seriously. And, and I, I really appreciate hearing uh, your personal motivations for, for why this, this type of work is so important. Uh, so thank you for sharing about that. So we've uh, already used the term resilience and resiliency a couple of times through the conversation. And in previous episodes, uh, we've sort of dived into to what that term means. Um, but in my own work um, and in conversations with colleagues that I have, it's, it's pretty clear that the term resilience can mean a lot of things to different people depending on the context. So could you um, just elaborate on on what resilience means for Canon design. So for Canon design, we, we try to keep it pretty simple. And what we say it's uh, really, it's preparing for, uh, being able to withstand and being able to recover from disturbances. Uh, and we use disturbances specifically as opposed to a hurricane or a specific event, um, because it really is a disturbance to your operations or your um, you're on you're, what you expected, your plan of what you would be doing in that uh, facility. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And, and I think using this broader term is useful. But then when I imagine uh, when you're designing for uh, resilience of these hospitals, you are thinking about specific events that those hospitals are, are likely to, to experience um, and, and ways that you can specifically make those hospitals um, better adapted to those types of extremes. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. So part of the project um, would certainly be an assessment and a planning phase where we are evaluating um, the vulnerability of the site uh, based on the um, 
specific potential disasters or disturbances that could affect, you know, weather-related, as well as man-made events. And then comparing that with the functionality and needs of the building, really you know, tailoring a uh, resilient design approach. Uh, moving on to the, I guess, the main conversation today, and we've alluded to uh, health services, and, and I mentioned hospitals in the beginning, but our conversation today is predominantly about resilient hospitals. So could you uh, speak on why this particular issue is, is so important and, uh, and what it means in your eyes to, to, for, for a hospital to be resilient? Yeah, I'll, I'll take this one. This is Mike. As Brett mentioned, you know, uh, resiliency is all about, you know, adapting to disturbances. And disturbances could mean different things, different things to different people and different businesses. Um, you know, for a factory that makes widgets, it could be, you know, operational continuity or operational discontinuity. That means that they have to shut down the plant for eight hours. Uh, for a hospital, though, it's, it's, you know, you've got critical care patients um, that are uh, basically in need of all the things that it takes to run a hospital building, electricity, heating, cooling, fresh water, fresh air, uh, and any disruption to those things uh, is going to have a major impact not only on the, the level of care that those patients are getting uh, or the, um, the level of care that their, uh, their families are getting while they're there, um, but also, um, you know, it's a potential liability if, if any of those services are lost. Um, and also you need, uh, you've got staff that need to be there, so they need to be taken care of as well. So, uh, there's a lot of different, uh, pieces moving when it comes to, uh, a hospital. Um, you know, you can't just send people home for the day if the building's not working the way it's supposed to be. So it needs to be really, um, durable and able to withstand these disturbances. What would you say then, given those disturbances that uh, hospitals could potentially face, what, what would make a hospital resilient in your eyes? That really comes down to uh, location, for one, um, because a hospital in Florida will be faced with different types of uh, disturbances than a hospital in uh, New England and certainly different than something in St. Louis or in California. So when we identify these disturbances, you know, we, we can tailor the mitigation strategies, but the idea is that you're, um, you're staying operational and you're meeting those different needs. And that may be, um, you may be dealing with flooding, uh, maybe dealing with high winds, earthquake, and there's certainly uh, some code-driven uh, design features that go into these projects. But I think as resilient design uh, conversations go, we're looking beyond tables and what is bare minimum to code and looking for more extreme events and how do we deal with things looking out 10, 20, 30 years into the future of what those events might be. So we're really increasing our resilience to uh, future disturbances. So it sounds like you're, you're really trying to take a, a proactive approach to, to dealing with these events rather than reactive. Exactly. I think resilient design is inherently a proactive approach um, to being able to maintain your operations, protect your real estate, and maintain life safety in events that we can only predict as opposed to uh, rely on what's happened in the past. So I, I'm curious uh, how, um, when you're designing uh, these these 
infrastructure features, what the role of, I guess, uncertainty is when you're making these designs? Because there's only so much, you know, that we are able to to predict. So I'm, I'm curious just if you could speak about uh, the role of uncertainty and, and how you deal with, with uncertain features in your design. Sure. Yeah, in terms of certainty, um, like Brett said, it depends on, you know, the, the particular uh, risk assessment for the location that this facility, in this case, a hospital is going to be, right? Uh, so we know that in uh, California and, uh, you know, the, the middle coastal area of California uh, specifically uh, is going to be a lot more uh, prone to wildfires, uh, say, than, uh, you know, a hospital in, in New England, on the coast of New England. Um, so uh, design features that go into that have to uh, take into consideration, uh, you know, the fact that the uh, the building perimeter needs to be kind of free of uh, unnecessary vegetation. The building facade needs to be a non-combustible material or, or fire-resistant material. Um, and something that a lot of people don't think about is the, you know, the fresh air. I mean, for hospitals, uh, indoor air quality is huge, and getting fresh air into a building is huge. And so how do you get, uh, you know, fresh air into a building when the air outside is smoky and unbreathable? Um, you have to shut down um, uh, the ventilation systems and what kind of system do you put into there to recirculate air and clean air when you can't use outside air. So there are systems out there that do that, uh, but they're not systems that you would put into every single hospital there is uh, because they're expensive. Uh, so likewise, in, in New England, um, you know, we're looking at uh, more risks of uh, inland flooding because of the increased precipitation brought on by climate change. If it's on the coast, we're looking at, you know, uh, sea level rise or, or, or storm surge. And so we have to protect against water getting into the first floor of that hospital. So uh, we want to make sure that we don't put, you know, any of the critical um, services on the first floor. Um, certainly no um, uh, acute care um, patient rooms, the central sterile operating rooms, those types of things that need to be running all the time. Um, we wouldn't do that if there was any chance that water is going to get into that first floor. Um, and for the first floor that, uh, that is there, uh, that's maybe not used uh, for those critical functions, uh, maybe we need to plan for that first floor to get wet um, and be able to dry out. So, uh, you know, do we, uh, do we use, uh, you know, terrazzo flooring or, or tile flooring uh, where normally we might use carpeting or something like that? And it's all about, you know, as Brett said earlier, taking that possible disturbance, planning for it, and designing the building so that the, uh, the, the building can react to that disturbance in, as quickly as possible. Thanks. That was a, that was a great answer. Um, and I think that sort of leads into my next question about, um, well, so a lot of the infrastructure in the U.S. Uh, is not all that great, which is uh, unfortunate given the affluence of our nation that we have a lot of uh, crumbling infrastructure across the, the country, and I'm curious uh, what you know about the general state of hospitals in the U.S. and whether you think that they uh, are, for the most part, uh, resilient to extreme weather events, and if not, uh, how easily could they um, get up to code, uh, um, so to speak? Um, is it necessary to build new hospitals entirely, or can they be retrofitted? So I would say certainly any hospitals built 30, 40 years ago, probably did not consider um, the ex extreme events of the future 
um, and probably aren't up to the codes of today. Um, so they, they, they may need to have uh, new hospitals built, replacement hospitals, um, but newer, newer buildings certainly have an opportunity to integrate uh, resilient design strategies when they do renovations. Um, they may be major renovations if we're trying to relocate mechanical equipment or generators off the ground floor, but they're, you know, they also might be uh, minor considerations if we're talking about doing work on the site as far as, you know, mitigating floods or, or, or potential wildfires. I mentioned codes and eventually building codes do catch up with events. Uh, we've done it with with hurricanes in, in, in the south and, and FPA and fire and fire ratings, but they are they're they're lagging after the events happen. Um, so uh, I would say hospitals that are being built today uh, certainly are much better performing and owners are much more aware of the potential looking ahead. Um, but code is only going to get you uh, to what the tables say as far as uh, potential events and not necessarily what the peak might, events might be um, 20, 30 years from now. Gotcha. So, so codes are not as forward-looking as, uh, as they perhaps ought to be. Codes are reactive, right? So they, yeah. codes are implemented uh, based on how things perform uh, after an event. And certainly there is a lag between codes being developed and adopted uh, in different municipalities. So they're always behind. Um, and uh, where, again, as I mentioned with resilient design, we're trying to be proactive and looking toward the, and being predictive toward the future. Uh, so I noticed that uh, in the, your uh, report that you published about this topic, that a, a lot of it focuses on uh, physical design elements on how to improve resiliency, ranging from the consideration of building materials to redundant power sources, to even including uh, natural elements like wetlands where, uh, where possible. Uh, but of course, in the case of hospitals, there's an essential human element to the way that they function. Uh, so I'm curious how Canon Design considers the way in which people interact with uh, those spaces and how the people within those spaces um, sort of react to the extreme events uh, for which the hospitals are, are being designed. Yeah, so there's a couple couple parts to that answer. Um, one is, you know, how do, how do people, um, you know, kind of inhabit these spaces that are designed for resilience? And the second part is, how do people react when the, uh, when the, the uh, I guess, the disturbance is upon them? For us, you know, the, the perfect, um, you, know, system, you know, resilient design uh, would not be visible, and and the people that are using the building would ha would have no idea that the that the um, that resilience was um, was kind of uh, baked into the design, right? So uh, I think you mentioned wetlands, um, and in an area where we have uh, increased precipitation that could lead to inland flooding, you know, obviously we're going to try and get the building up higher um, than we need to, and get it out of that area that might have some some uh, some potential flooding. But if it is if it's an existing building that we can actually work with and, and rehab uh, and bring it up to the standards that it needs to be at. Uh, we could uh, be introducing some uh, type of on-site detention uh, for uh, in, you know, uh, excess water um, that might be uh, due to runoff or roof runoff. Um, 
maybe that has some storage in it. But um, and in the case of uh, our Nantucket project, there was um, large uh, uh, stormwater detention um, basins underneath the uh, the parking surface uh, in the parking lot. Um, there was also some um, uh, wetland type um, uh, elements in the landscape too, just to um, kind of help that um, detention. Uh, but for the most part, it, it should just look like, you know, uh, regular old landscaping. Um, and uh, landscaping has come into the fore in terms of healthcare environments as a place for healing. Um, so uh, they're often referred to as places of respite, a place where a family can take uh, the patient outside of the building, uh, walk them around, um, maybe a trail that goes around the hospital, has little um, park bench uh, type settings, maybe some uh, tall grasses. Uh, for a little bit of privacy, um, and that's actually part of the um, um, you know, a trend toward evidence-based design in terms of uh, creating healing environments for patients. That is, um, giving patients access to natural light, uh, to, to natural elements, and so that ties in very well with, uh, with you know, the, the better healing environments that we know of, ones that, you know, take a lot of these resilient design elements uh, into, into consideration and make it part of the design. How the uh, the patients or the staff or the occupants of the building uh, would react um, in a in, the, in an event that really has to do um, a little bit um, well a little bit with the design um, elements, but it has more to do with the plan that gets put in place, and that's part of the uh, resilient design uh, as well, it, which is working with the facility to create a plan, uh, almost a disaster plan, and making sure they have one in place. Uh, so that, um, you know, signage in the corridors leads people to where they need to go. Um, you know, one thing that we look at a lot in healthcare is, um, you know, uh, how do you keep the building cool in the summer if it's a hot climate uh, or, or, uh, or warm in the winter if it's a cold climate? Uh, and so that could be, you know, additional insulation. Um, but we did talk about earlier the natural ventilation uh, that's required or the ventilation that's required. Um, so we also try and design um, operable windows into into the building so that uh, they can't crack the windows if the ventilation system does go out. Thank you. Uh, that was that was a great uh, was a great answer. I I hadn't heard about this. Uh, How'd you refer to it? The healing environments uh, concept. I thought that was really I thought that was really important. And uh, thank you for sharing that with me. I wouldn't have known about it otherwise. Um, so I. I You've, you've alluded to, to this sort of already, um, but I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit more about the, the types of tools that you use in your work for determining uh, what adaptations and strategies would be appropriate uh, for hospitals in, uh, given their locations. Sure, there's, uh, there's certainly a lot of online tools for predictions on you know, flooding and, and storm surge that we take full advantage of. Um, but one of the one of the uh, tools that we like to use in-house and that I think is very exciting is when we use uh, computer simulations to uh, really tell us how the building is going to perform um, during the events and and I'm going to stress perform with without power. Um, Mike mentioned how we need to provide cooling, we need to provide heating, we need to provide ventilation. Um, Regardless of where your project is, if it's in New England or Florida and it's dealing with hurricanes or, or uh, just ice storms, um, your building will eventually lose power. Um, and 
how your building performs without power um, over an extended period of time is is uh, a really exciting way that we're using a, a computer simulation to understand and then be able to design um, some strategies and work with facilities. Uh, so we're, we call that a passive survivability model. Um, and we, we tend to uh, model this during a peak summer heat wave or a peak cold period during the winter. And then we understand how the building performs, not just as a whole, but in individual spaces. What would, we, what would be required to uh, keep those buildings um, not necessarily comfortable, but livable and survivable? Um, and be able then to work with the operations in order to relocate people to different parts of that building uh, over the days so that they can then uh, hopefully last and not have to worry about evacuating the, the project until they can get power restored. That's that that's a really that's a really interesting uh, tool. It sounds sounds really useful and uh, um, insightful. I now that we have um, a better idea of the uh, the design framework in which you operate and the tools at your disposal. Could you um, tell us a little bit about the uh, case study examples that your firm has already designed? Sure. Um, so Nantucket Island is a recent project. It's it's opened uh, a month or so ago. It is a it is a small hospital on uh, Nantucket Island, which is roughly 30 miles off the coast of Massachusetts, sitting in the North Atlantic. And if in my mind, if you had to pick a building to be resilient, you really couldn't pick a, uh, a, a, a piece of uh, real estate more precarious than, uh, than that one. So we certainly looked at uh, all, these, all the design considerations and potentials of hurricanes and high winds and ice storms and the potential for not being able to uh, refuel or restaff the building because of problems in you know in the ocean uh, and having to ship everything by boat. Um, so that that hospital was designed with operable windows. We had mechanical systems above the floodplain. We had uh, redundancy in the uh, in in the services. We had extended fuel systems or fuel supplies so that the backup and emergency generator system we could run. Uh, beyond the, re the code required hours um, and certainly uh, as a the only hospital on that island it is it is really seen as a um, community uh, resource and we, we like to say it was designed to be the last building standing on the island. I have a, just a follow-up question uh, you mentioned uh, having the these uh, stores of, of uh, gas in order to to keep the hospital running in case uh, uh, power outages. How how long could the this hospital uh, continue to to function just using those sort of uh, backup sources of energy? So, when when we evaluated the project, we we know that even if that building, um, you know, the island itself, the utility grid would is under risk of uh, being um, being lost during during a major event. 
So code required the hospital to have 72 hours of fuel oil in order to run the backup generator. And in this case, we, we included 90, a 96-hour storage capacity. Uh, and I know you also have a project uh, in Miami. Do you want to speak on that? Yeah, I'll talk a little about the uh, Miami. Um, it's the Mount Sinai Medical Center, and it's in the uh, it's in Miami Beach um, section of Miami. Uh, so, uh, you know, if you look at the uh, predicted uh, uh, predictions for sea level rise, uh, this is kind of ground zero for um, for sea level rise. Uh, this particular site um, in in Biscayne in Biscayne Bay area. Uh, is actually a little bit higher than the others. So the, the essential strategy was to move the hospital uh, because it wasn't like they were going to not have a hospital there. There's already a hospital there. We're actually adding a bed tower, uh, but is to uh, plan the hospital to be moved uh, a little higher up uh, in elevation. Um, in addition, um, all the, uh, the surface area around it was, um, was brought up, uh, raised up by four feet, um, all the grounds around it. Uh, to um, to buy it some extra time uh, from that sea level rise. Um, on that one, the first floor, uh, like I mentioned earlier, as an example, uh, was was designed really so that these critical elements would not be on the first floor, and that uh, and that the finishes on the first floor would be able to survive uh, any kind of uh, uh, rain or water getting in there, uh, which we don't anticipate uh, for a while. But still, you know, hospitals have to last for you know. 50 years, 60 years, 70 years. Uh, so these are these are long-term buildings and long-term investments. Another project uh, we uh, completed was a, uh, a bed tower at um, uh, Texas um, in the Texas Medical Centers for uh, Texas Children's Hospital. Uh, so Texas Medical Center is a, is a collection of hospitals uh, in Houston, and um, they were uh, affected pretty heavily in uh, 2005 uh, by uh, Hurricane uh, Allison. Or actually, sorry, that was 2001. Um, the area was inundated with about 35 inches of rain in a very short period of time, and a lot of the buildings were uh, adversely affected by uh, the uh, runoff, uh, really just getting everywhere, uh, getting into the buildings, getting into the underground spaces. And it was really had to do with uh, two things. One was the, uh, the area in the neighborhood was, well, three things. It was in a floodplain, so that was one strike. Uh, the second was that it was uh, a vast amount of overpaving. Uh, so there was really nowhere for the flood water to go. It was all impermeable surfaces. And thirdly, uh, this is kind of a long-term trend in the area, uh, but because of the impermeability of the surfaces, uh, there is a, a land subsidence uh, effect occurring. So essentially the land is drying out underneath all these buildings and the buildings are sinking, uh, which it just exacerbates the, uh, the, the low-lying um, low area issue. Uh, so, uh, you know, a few things uh, that were done uh, to uh, to that area were really to focus on getting up, uh, getting all that asphalt up um, and, and allowing the water to percolate down to combat the subsidence and also to, to help the runoff. Uh, so that was kind of a, a big picture strategy um, uh, for not just the building that we worked on, for, for all the buildings in the, in the region, in the, uh, in the neighborhood. Uh, and so it was. It was really one of the earlier examples of a kind of a, I wouldn't say a regional uh, strategy, but it was a it was a multi-organizational, uh, uh, almost entire city uh, strategy toward resilience, uh, with a particular eye toward uh, flood flood resilience. Um, all the um, uh, openings are protected uh, toward the garages. 
Um, you know, there's trench drains at, uh, at major entries, areaways are elevated up um, uh, off of the, uh, the sidewalk where normally an areaway is a, is a place where fresh air can be brought down into a basement level air handling unit. Uh, you may walk over them all the time in cities like New York and Boston and not even think about what they are, but they're pulling in fresh air into the building. Uh, these are um, these areaways are all elevated up on curbs. Um, uh, there was uh, a lot of connections between buildings um, underground, uh, and those were not compartmentalized so that once one building got compromised with flood water, it just spread out to all the other buildings. Uh, and so uh, essentially flood doors were put in, almost like submarine doors were put in between buildings to prevent that from happening so they could be closed. Um, and I think one of the biggest um, uh, thing had to do with the uh, maintaining or protecting the uh, electrical service for the for the buildings. So any switch gears that were um, that were located below grade were brought up above grade, uh, and not only above grade, but they were raised up above the 500-year floodplain. Um, so you'll have uh, electrical rooms with uh, basically uh, platforms uh, where the switch gears are. And another uh, really big move was that the um, the Texas Medical Center, um, all the organizations and, and institutions uh, basically pitched in to create a, a 48 megawatt uh, district cogeneration plant. Uh, so like some of the smaller hospitals that will have a, um, uh, you know, a, a, a emergency generator uh, with fuel, um, this is uh, basically a, a, an emergency generator on steroids. Uh, it's a, it's a, and it's a cogeneration plant. So uh, while it is using fossil fuels, at least it's uh, you know capturing the waste heat off of that electricity generation uh, and using that for good in the uh, in the area. Hearing that response about about Houston makes me think about um, how the the decisions that you guys make as a firm for designing these spaces, how those decisions impact the rest of the community. Uh, since, as you mentioned, you know this this choice that you're these choices that you're making are going to influence the, the buildings surrounding the hospitals, so it becomes sort of almost a regional decision. So I'm curious uh, when you're design, designing these features, uh, how much do you, you communicate and interact with uh, other members of the community, whether it be private business owners, um, local governments, community organizations, um, and, and things of that nature. So th since clearly your, these design elements don't exist in a, in a vacuum, uh, I'm, I'm just sort of curious uh, what you do about those interactions. So hospitals, being the community resource that they are, they're, they're the ones communicating with the community, the greater community, uh, often. So they're bringing a lot of this information uh, back and forth to us and and from us. So we may not necessarily directly be involved with uh, community outreach or or getting sure or getting input from the uh, from the neighborhood, but we certainly have these conversations with uh, our clients and want to make sure that we are integrated into any regional strategies and uh, emphasize how this this new building or this renovated building. Uh, may fit into their uh, community plans. Oh, I also, I think there's one more project that I wanted to hear you guys speak about, uh, the one uh, in Manhattan. Do you have uh, anything to share about that? So that project was uh, really a, a post-Sandy re replanning. Um, after the, uh, the VA hospital there uh, was inundated by floodwaters, 
Uh, we were part of the team that uh, reevaluated the, the, the site and uh, worked to um, kind of lay out the groundwork of how that project could be uh, rebuilt um, and, uh, and, and to be more resilient going forward. Um, so with these, so these four projects that you guys have worked on in the sort of hospital healthcare uh, institution sort of uh, framing, are, are there other resilient hospital projects uh, coming up in the future that you'll be working on? Yeah, we've, we've got a bunch. Um, uh, and uh, without giving away too many details about, you know, what they are, I mean, some of the clients um, that we're encountering now, uh, even in, in healthcare, which is traditionally a, um, a big user of energy, and, and they've got a lot of priorities other than sustainability in a lot of cases. Um, but they're asking more and more about, you know, how do we get our building to be, um, you know, uh, forward thinking in terms of energy usage. So we have clients that are, um, you know, coming to us with, um, you know, not just trying to meet energy codes, but exceed energy codes. And anytime we can do that and make a make a building like a hospital higher performing, it's going to be inherently more resilient. Uh, so we're hearing a lot more about that, which is really good. One of our clients um, in California is uh, Kaiser Permanente, and um, we've got uh, several different projects with them. Uh, but I don't know if you're familiar with uh, them and um, you know some of their. Uh, environmentally uh, minded moves that they've been making, but they've been a huge um, uh, consumer of um, solar electricity in, in terms of you know, buying uh, equity on, uh, on solar um, farms and actually installing solar on their own projects. Uh, and I think in combination with you know, the energy efficiency that we're, we're seeking, we could at some point have you know, essentially net zero energy hospitals uh, in the not not too uh, distant future, and a net zero energy hospital is going to be uh, inherently uh, resilient. Yeah, Stephen, I would add that you know, I you know my goal is that um, we have these conversations with all our clients because as designers, I think it's it's our obligation to point out um, what we see as the future um, and potential impacts of their building. So be it a hospital or, or any other building, um, I, I think we're having resilient design conversations. Yeah, that's, that's really great to, to hear that, that you're sort of bringing this to the table with all of your clients. It's obviously such an important uh, consideration, I think, in order to, to have this proactive, uh, forward-looking um, approach. You really, you really need to consider uh, resilience and long-term resilience, not just five, ten years, but, but further than that. I thought that was great that uh, Mike, you were talking about a zero energy hospitals because it's not. I didn't. I didn't notice um, in the report that I looked over from you guys, like mention of of solar or other sort of renewable energy sources. So it's that's really exciting to hear that uh, your clients uh, in California and elsewhere are are interested in this. So I think that's that's a great avenue to be moving forward to continue making hospitals even more uh, even more resilient. Uh, anything else that you two would like to, to add to the conversation that I haven't directly asked you about? Oh, I think, I think we've covered it, Stephen. Yeah, you have great questions. Thanks for asking them. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, happy, I'm happy that they, that they covered uh, things well. And thank you so much for taking your time uh, to, to be with us and sharing your insight. This is a really interesting conversation. I know I learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners will as well. Um, so thank you so much for talking with us. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'd also like to thank Christopher Whitcomb, also from Canada Design, 
who helped coordinate this interview. This episode was made possible by Christopher reaching out to our team, uh, expressing an interest in collaborating on an episode. So um, that was really great. Uh, so thank you to Christopher and thanks to you two again so much for, for being here. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. The Future Cities Podcast is an outreach effort brought to you by the Urban Resilience to Extremes Sustainability Research Network, or UREX as we usually refer to it. To learn more about UREX, visit www.sustainability.asu.edu forward slash urban resilience. If you have any questions, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, you can email us at futurecitiespodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at futurecitiespod. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.